Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. There was jubilation and excitement in the space community this week with the unveiling of the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. It is going to be so precise, you're going to see whether or not planets, because of the chemical composition that we can determine with this telescope of their atmosphere, if those planets are habitable. And when you look at something as big as this is, we are going to be able to answer questions that we don't even know what the questions are yet. That was NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. A bit later, I'll talk with Sean Usman of the firm Raya Space Activity about some suspicious Chinese activity in the vicinity of the Webb telescope and about the yawning gaps in our ability to track what is going on in the vastness of space. Jeff? Well, you and Mr. Usman raised some very interesting, even disturbing questions about Chinese advances in space warfare, Gene. Meanwhile, back on Earth... A couple of weeks ago, I watched a fascinating documentary on the real story behind Operation Valkyrie. People may remember that was the failed plot to assassinate Hitler in 1944. The documentary said that the high-level plotters against Hitler were considered traitors by the German public two decades, maybe even more, after the war. In other words, sympathy for the Nazis remained deeply rooted in German society until the government proclaimed the plotters martyrs, not traitors, in 1964. But attitudes were slow to change. Then came a piece I read in the online investigative magazine, The Atavist, about how in the waning days of the Cold War, East German police and intelligence agencies, abetted by a KGB agent named Vladimir Putin, used a far-right charismatic activist named Rainer Sontag to stir up trouble for West Germany. Indeed, the Russians had surreptitiously backed neo-Nazis in West Germany for years, the story said, to tar its government as sympathetic to them. In any event, I was sure Spy Talk listeners would be interested in this fascinating story of Putin and the neo-Nazis, so I invited a co-author of the Atavist story, Lee Baldwin, to come on the show and talk about it. Lee Baldwin, welcome to Spy Talk. You and Sean Williams have written an absolutely fascinating and intriguing piece that goes a long way to explaining Vladimir Putin's early KGB activities in developing and exploiting the far right in German politics. Now, let's set the scene for Putin in in Dresden, Dresden in the 1980s. Communism is collapsing and Dresden is flooded with uh, tantalizing things from the West, such as sex magazines, a sex industry, brothels and so on. So set the scene for us in Dresden. Well, this is Dresden in 1990, just after the wall has come down, Dresden's been a backwater, if you like. Berlin is where all the really interesting stuff in the Cold War is going on. Putin has been posted to Dresden as a KGB officer. He's not necessarily having the most fascinating time there, although he did say that he put on a lot of weight from drinking a lot of beer. But um, come the fall of the wall, Dresden starts to received this influx of new things from the West that were forbidden. People from West Germany see an economic opportunity. They pour into East Germany, setting up things like sex shops and brothels. The one thing is that in East Germany, there weren't very many foreigners during the Cold War. People who did come from abroad may have been students largely from abroad, or where there were a certain number of foreign workers who were all kept in separate housing, kept very separate from the normal populace. So. The other people who saw opportunities as well as economic were Nazis. There had been a suppression of all sorts of political resistance um, in a one-party state 
for around half a century. And suddenly there was uh, this opportunity both for economic influx of new types, but also for racists to, to spread their new propaganda. And for criminals. So let's bring in a key character in your story, Rainer Sontag. He's a petty criminal um, with a, a long history of being in and out of jail, and the local police see an opportunity to use him, which uh, eventually Vladimir Putin gets a piece of. Rainer Sontag's story, as far as we can tell it, starts in East Germany in the 70s. What we have is a cache of documents from the Stasi archives, which show us how Germany's secret police were spying on almost everyone, including Sontag, from an early age. He was a petty criminal. He got mixed up with the law. And at some point, police offered him um, a deal, either basically spend most of your life in prison uh, or spy for us. Now, the unit he ended up working for was what's called the K-1 unit of the East German police, technically a police unit, but in practice answering to the Stasi. And this particular K-1 unit that recruited Rainer Sontag was overseen by Vladimir Putin. The uh, Stasi, we should explain for people not familiar with it, were the all-encompassing secret police of East Germany. Uh, they had an ex Between the Stasi and other police units, they, you write that there were some 200,000 informants uh, in East Germany. One out of every 63 citizens was an informant. My God. So anyway, there's this vast police apparatus, and Vladimir Putin being a KGB guy and Dresden wants to have a close relationship with them, and they uh, begin to work together developing informants, including Rainer Sontag. Yes, that's right. I mean, part of it was bureaucratic pressure on them to recruit as many informants as possible. So they were hoovering these guys up. There was a guy called Georg Schneider who worked for Putin, and he had a reputation as being a bit of a genius recruiter of informants. He used South American students who'd been sent to East Germany to um, set up networks of spies running all the way to South America, which he used to run a sort of reverse rat line, smuggling people back from South America into the West to spy on people. And one of the, the agents he talent spotted, if you like, was Rainer Sontag. He was a pretty small-time guy when they first recruited him, um, but he turned out to be far more influential than they could have imagined. And uh, Putin and the East Germans saw an opportunity with Rainer Sontag to develop a far-right movement in West Germany to help destabilize the West German government. And we should also note, as you do in your story, that uh, Putin, uh, in the Soviet Union, he had worked for the KGB's fifth directorate, the division tasked with fighting ideological subversion by using informants and agents to flush out anti-regime agitators and pamphleteers. So this was not new territory for Putin. Anyway, tell us of how they began to use uh, Sontag to build uh, a far-right movement in West Germany. Well, this is exactly the question, and historians are quite divided on this. Going back to the 60s, the KGB and the Stasi had a history of stirring up Nazi um, propaganda and violence in West Germany, basically to destabilize things, to discredit the West German government, either by causing chaos or by hoping that the West government would ban the Nazi parties and then pointing the finger at them and saying they were hypocritical and undemocratic. By the time the 1980s come around, I think the recruitment of Rainer Sonntag is a bit more pragmatic. They're not necessarily trying to start a big right-wing movement in the rest. He's a usefully placed agent that can tell them a lot about that movement. And then that gives them the option, yes, they can exploit the movement, but it also gives them just intelligence about the movement. And they're worried at this point about Nazism as a protest movement spreading back east. So it allows them to get a voice, get a mole, if you like, inside the neo-Nazi movement and get a handle on what's going on. So it's really interesting. Uh, you're kind of saying that the intelligence services, the KGB and the East German uh, 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 security services, and then eventually German security services see the uh, neo-Nazis as a threat after German, uh, Germany was reunified, uh, but also a useful tool. So after Germany was re reunified, they become more of a useful tool. And what the, the East German police, so 
Sontag's controller, Georg Johannes Schneider, who worked for Putin, remains his controller after the Berlin Wall fell. It falls. Um, East Germany collapses. Communism collapses. The KGB agents stationed in Dresden throw all their files into the incinerator and scuttle off back to Moscow. But Georg Schneider remains the controller of Sontag, and he finds now as an ordinary policeman back in the Dresden police, suppressing his relationship with the KGB and hoping no one finds out that Zontag is a very useful stooge because he can play him off against left-wing movements. You've got a lot of anarchists, um, young anarchist groups in Dresden, and you've got young right-wing Nazi groups, and they're battling each other in the streets. And the Nazis are often being used by the police as a tool to suppress the left-wing gangs, and vice versa to a certain extent. And these right-wing extremists remain very powerful in Germany. There's a a legacy to Rainer Sontag. He um, set up to clean the town, clean up the town. He presented himself as a vigilante when he returned to his hometown of Dresden after time in the West. Um, And he confronted a couple of pimps whose brothel he'd sworn to smash, and they shot him in the head. And there's a strange historical parallel here. In the 1930s, there was one of Hitler's SA troops, was a guy called Horst Wessel, who was also killed. And although he was a low-life thug, the Nazi movement turned him into a martyr. They wrote songs about him. They had marches in his memory. And this is exactly what happens to Rainer Sontag. He's a petty criminal. He runs protection rackets. He's claiming to smash up the brothel because it doesn't fit with his Nazi ideology, but he's probably trying to extort protection money from the prince as well. When he gets shot, suddenly they lionize him. They write songs about him too. And his memorial procession through the streets of Dresden ends up being the biggest Nazi march in Germany since 1945. The consequences of that are still playing out today with Dresden as a, a center for the far right. How would that, that was fascinating that there was this huge turnout of neo Nazis uh, to memorialize uh, Sontag, uh, and and his uh, adherents went on a rampage as well in several towns. There was you can't attribute all of this to Rainer Sontag. He was a leader of the movement, but he was also part of the movement. So what we see in East Germany after the fall of the Berlin Wall, for lots of reasons, including opportunism and economic collapse ideological vacuum after the collapse of the one-party state, um, a huge upswell in Nazi violence. After Rainer Sontag's death, that only increases. There's uh, a young guy from Mozambique, a student called uh, José Gomondai, who gets thrown from a moving tram and killed. There are, in the autumn following Sontag's murder, there are riots in a place called Hoyerswerda, not far from Dresden, where asylum seekers' homes are burnt. And there is basically what you could almost call a, a nationwide rampage across the former East Germany. That violence continues um, in a sporadic sort of way all through the 1990s. And fast forward to the current era, a few years ago, an anti-Islamic movement called Pegida was founded in Dresden. And it's also a stronghold of the AFD, who are right-wing populists, but who have some uncomfortable connections with, mm. with the far right. And some people would call them openly far right politicians. And-, and the seas might have been set in Dresden many years ago in the early 1990s. But Putin has continued to foster these right-wing populist groups across the continent. Well, this is it. So his use and ex- his exploitation of Rainer Sontag in the 80s, when Putin was a KGB officer in Dresden, was probably quite pragmatic rather than ideological. And if you want to draw any parallel, I think you could see today that Putin continues to to take a very pragmatic view of using the far right as as a blunt instrument and he's happy to exploit it and the consequences may not necessarily be thought out particularly but if it sows a bit of chaos then so much the better well it seems not to have hurt uh, the ties between the french far right and russia seems not to have hurt marie le pen in france who has uh accepted tons of money from the russians for her campaigns doesn't seem to be hurting her standing in france well, we're seeing globally, I suppose, uh, a polarization. Trump in 
America uh, had moments when he was effectively cheerleading for Putin, um, Salvini in Italy. There are lots of leaders whose polarized followings, if you like, won't bat an eyelid at relationships with Russia because because any of these polarizing factors it sort of reinforces the split, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And Boris Johnson in, in the UK and the Brexit movement uh, found a lot of favor in Moscow as well. There seems to be a strategy coming out of Moscow that it's quite easy to, to drive that polarization by, by splitting um, the communities along ideological or, or, or moral or generally identity lines. We had instances running up to the Trump election, I think, where where there were protests from one movement being organized on the same, a left-wing movement being organized on the same city block as a right-wing movement via social media. And then it transpires that it's a troll farm in Moscow orchestrating those things. So there's, a, there's very much a sense that, it, that, that playing both ends against the middle is a, is a productive strategy for the Russians. And how would you assess the, the influence of Germany's far right? both within Germany and internationally? It's very difficult to say. Germany has, in some ways, struggled more than any other um, European country with its far right. In some cases, it's been very successful. Germany has, as a whole, on a national level, done a great deal to come to terms with its history. And there's always a democratic debate of at what point do you ban a particular party? It's interesting looking at the story of Rainer Sonntag because you see the relationship with the KGB and the Stasi and how they were willing to exploit the far right. But there's also, it shouldn't be neglected, have been relationships between West German intelligence and the intelligence of modern Germany with and complicity with certain elements of the far right. And that's a huge institutional problem that remains. It's the, the bleeding of the traditional far right into the populist far right that, if anything, is is most insidious and that's not necessarily a german problem but it's a problem that that germany can um, exemplify Mm -hmm. and the far right has made inroads into the security services there have been scandals about various security service chiefs and their relationship with the with the far right likewise the police there was a a few years ago a string of neo-nazi motivated murders and there were big questions in Germany about how those invest- how the investigations into those were con- were conducted. There is an endemic problem of institutional sympathy for the far right in Germany. I don't think it's widespread, but there are cases where it's popped up. Where in other countries that might be quite eyebrow raising. Is there some parallel between? Uh, the KGB's exploitation and Putin's continuing exploitation of far-right parties in Europe with Ukraine? I think there there certainly is, and there's this sort of hall of mirrors um, logic going on in Ukraine, and this is the irony of it that that we were very much aware of when we wrote our story that Putin is self-declaredly denazifying Ukraine, Ukraine, running after fictional Nazis. and here we were able to uncover his relationship with with a very real one. It's all part of the the same web of, of propaganda and this sort of turning upside down down of the ideas. And again, it sort of it does come back down to a certain pragmatism and a willingness to to instrumentalize political movements one way or the other with um, with the attempt of sowing uncertainty and chaos and disharmony um, in the West. Putin's strategy is, it goes beyond cynical. There's, I don't know what the word for it is, beyond uh, ruthless and cynical, that he uh, denounces uh, Ukraine and smears it as a neo-Nazi uh, outpost uh, or a government riddled with neo-Nazis. At the same time, he has spent decades promoting neo-Nazis in the far right. It's a very stark irony. And as I say, for him, it's probably just a pragmatic calculation. Mm-hmm. Do you see him? I know you're not a Ukraine expert, and you've written about what happened in Germany with the KGB and Putin and local poli- state and local police with the far right and nurturing the far right. 
But do you see um, a parallel in in Ukraine where uh, it, it won't, it'll crest at a certain point, but won't necessarily be a, a deciding factor in Ukraine? I would hesitate to speculate about what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, it's in Ukraine. It's um, it's certainly Putin has failed to a large extent, and we were expecting him to march to Ukraine and and be in Kiev within uh, within a couple of days. And and Kiev remains independent, and he's not there. But how long this will rumble on, and how much it will provide fuel for a continuing propaganda war? Is it the is it a new Cold War? Is it something slightly different? It's certainly not a division on ideological grounds, but it is a division. It's, 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 it's difficult to say. And our security services here in the States are on alert about uh, Russian interference in the upcoming congressional elections and, of course, 2024's election, where the uh, Russians uh, wanted first just to create chaos in our system, and they've helped that along. Uh, and now uh, they may uh, come in to uh, uh, scoop up the fruits of that chaos in the next uh, round of elections here. Um, and uh, there doesn't seem to be anything stopping them. The social media is wide open to Russian interference and manipulation. One of the things that the Russians seem to be extraordinarily good at is taking the media infrastructure of the West and imitating it and turning it against itself. If you turned on Russia today, it would be coming from a country without that, for example, 24-hour rolling news tradition and compared it with CNN or BBC 24 or France 24 and any of these 24-hour news. So it would be very difficult on first glance to differentiate and to tell the difference between which is uh, a traditional news channel which is a propaganda machine. And it's, it's, so it's very easy for them to, to, to exploit people's uncertainty. Would you say that the Russian strategy in Germany of uh, you know, really pushing the far right and, and guiding a, a charismatic leader of the far right was risky or was it easy in, in the Germany of that period? In the context of Sonntag? Yes, I think it was quite easy, and in a way, it was almost accidental. In the 1980s, it was 1986, when, um, before the fall of the Berlin Wall, when Putin signed the papers to allow Sontag to cross over into the West. And they had no idea at the time they were taking a bit of a punt on him, because he might have just gone over to the West and disappeared, and they wouldn't have had there wouldn't have been very much they could do about it. In the and end, and West Germany, uh, the West German authorities easily cleared him as a as a political refugee from East Germany, didn't have any questions about him, and released him into the general populace to pursue life there. Yeah, we can assume that when he arrived at Gießen, which was the refugee camp where um, most of the people leaving East Germany were, were processed, that he would have been interrogated. He was a pretty low-life agent. He wasn't trusted with a clandestine radio. He wasn't trusted as a courier. They were basically letting him into the West. Um, they had no particular hold on him. He didn't, uh, um, and seeing what he would do. In the end, he became very close to a chap called Michael Kunin, who was West Germany's most powerful neo-Nazi at the time. Kunin um, was HIV positive and soon after was his health would deteriorate very rapidly and and just as uh, Zontag was really rising to become a powerful neo-Nazi he was dying of AIDS and that suddenly thrust Zontag into the limelight as one of his potential successors when the war fell the Nazis saw this opportunity to expand in the east and who better to do it, but then their East German neo-Nazi who had to go home, who knew the back alleys and the beer halls of Dresden, and he knew the, the housing projects where he could drum up support from dis disaffected youth. I found the story just absolutely fascinating. Thank you for coming on the show to, to talk about it, and we're going to keep an eye on this and maybe have you back again. Lee Baldwin, thanks so much for coming on this show. Thank you. What a story. You can follow Lee Baldwin's investigative work at the Atavist magazine online. Gene, 
And of course, Russians continue to fan and exploit extremism in Europe and the U.S. You might have seen a recent uh, report from the Institute on Race Relations about the growing culture of extremism in police forces across Europe. Uh, by their estimate, 81% of the gendarmes in France said they'd vote for Marine Le Pen, who is yeah. on the far right. Yeah, well, we've seen some of that here in the States. And there was a recent story, uh, an indictment by the Justice Department of two Homeland Security connected people, one an active Homeland Security agent and the other retired, but working as a detective who were induced by Chinese agents to help them gather information about Chinese dissidents in the United States. So I had written a story back in January about how foreign intelligence agencies were, were using local state police to gather information about dissidents. So uh, this is an ongoing story, and it's disturbing. A reminder that you can subscribe to our podcast. We'd love to have you do that. You also can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack, where you will find a lot of original reporting. Coming up, we're going to be talking about space, specifically something called cislunar. We'll be right back. The satellites that we rely on for intelligence, communications, military operations, operate in low Earth orbit, or LEO, and geostationary orbit known as GEO. But the vast area of space from the Earth to the Moon and beyond, called cislunar, is of increasing interest and concern. The U.S. capability to surveil activity in cislunar is extremely limited. And with other nations, especially China, moving assertively in space, it is a major gap. Sean Usman worked for more than 10 years in the intelligence community before founding RIA Space Activity. His firm is working with the Space Force to help the U.S. government see where it currently cannot. We have very good tracking abilities in LEO, all the way up to GEO, and this is primarily done by using ground-based radars. We're able to look at space debris and characterize where it's going. This is, this is the type of technology that was used to protect astronauts in the space shuttle and the ISS. Once you get to GEO and a little bit beyond that, that, that tracking ability becomes quite challenging from the ground. So you want to use space-based assets then. And it's, it's a challenging prospect. And it's, it's something that once you get beyond GEO, you do start to get into an environment where you're very blind. And the reason why you're blind is just because the distances are so large. Um, one thing you learn really early in grad school when you're studying uh, astrophysics is that space is mind-bendingly large. And you really only get to um, understand that for, for humans and for the military, we, we've just been playing outside of the pond a little bit, you know, similar to how, um, similar to how like um, when Earth, when, uh, when life first started to come out of water and get onto land, right? There were lots of uh, creatures there, like salamanders and reptiles that go, go out onto the, onto the beach and then go back in. Um, but actually a full, a full land-based animal took millions of years to evolve to do that. Right now, I, and I, I like using this analogy because it's very similar to where we are in, the space, in space right now. Is it becoming an area of strategic competition? Yes, the, once you get beyond geo, these big distances uh, result in strategic competition. The reason why is once you go beyond the geo belt and you're in the cislunar environment, it is simply impossible to track an object just because of the large distances. You can build, you can build the largest optic that you want, but you, you will still never be able to actually track everything up there because the distances are so large. So what you have when you're in a cislunar environment is you can operate your spacecraft in a way where it can, it's very impossible to detect it just from a physics perspective, not talk about technology or anything like that, just from a physics perspective, it's just too far away. So that means that when you have spacecraft out there, you can go out in the cislunar space, get lost, and then you can, you can come back into the lower orbits and not be detected, which is a very concerning um, aspect from, uh, from an intelligence and military perspective. Why? Let's think about a hypothetical 
ASAP test, which stands for anti-satellite test, to the geostationary belt. If someone was to conduct an ASAP test to the geostationary satellite, it takes a long time to get there from Earth. You can always see launches happening from Earth, and you'd be able to track it um, using lots of the ground-based radars that are, that are used for space debris monitoring uh, currently. So you'd be able to track and you'd have a lot of warning to know that this, that this type of uh, mission was happening. But let's say, for example, instead, you had a satellite that's in a lunar regime, just hanging out right there. There are several Chinese satellites in the lunar regime. If they decided to come into the geostationary belt, and if they were radio silent, for example, they were not communicating with Earth at all, it would be something that would happen where you would, they would come in and we would not be able to detect that. And that's the biggest concern right now is we want to be able to detect that, but there's no way to see, that set, to see those satellites optically based, with the, based on the physics of the problem. It's just very challenging. And the geostationary belt is of utmost importance to the world because that's where all our telecommunication satellites are. There's a lot of, um, uh, there, there's a lot of military and intelligence satellites up there as well. And there's a, there's a big need to protect those satellites. And those are some of the biggest, juiciest targets in the space domain because they, when you're in geostationary orbit, you just have to be a bigger satellite to do the job that you need to do with communicating with Earth. And so that's the biggest concern right now. And that's something that uh, my company has developed a system of lunar intelligence, which we call LUNINT, to solve that problem. And what does that involve? So our LUNINT project, uh, which is uh, funded by the U.S. Space Force, and that project is about building a constellation of small satellites that go out to the cislunar environment, and then they come back into retrograde geostationary orbit, and then they go back out. And these are small satellites that then provide surveillance, not only of the entire lunar environment, but also the geostationary environment. So it's a constellation of approximately 26 satellites that go around and it allows the, it gives the US Space Force the ability to monitor the entire region, to make sure that, to make sure that there is no type of ASAT type of test that emanates from the system environment ever happens. How long would it take to deploy this system? Based on our calculations, we think if we were to, um, we, we think that we would be able to deploy this system in approximately five to six years. And the most important thing about this system is um, the orbit that it uh, resides in. It's, it's a, one of the only stable orbits that allows you to surveil the entire cislunar regime and the geostationary regime, regime at the same time. And this is a really important orbit. Uh, and Whoever gets to that orbit first will own it. And it's our, our mission as RSA and with the US Space Force to make sure that we get a US satellite up there as soon as possible. Five or six years is a long time, considering the fact that uh, China has assets in cislunar already, correct? Yeah, this is true. This is true. Um, I think it would take five to six years for the full constellation, but we could put the first one up within 18 months if, if we really if we really had some gumption. And if you had the funding? Of course. So let's talk a little bit about what China is doing up there. They have been to the far side of the moon. They have put down a lunar rover and they have a satellite up there, a relay satellite, which is something we don't have, correct? Based on everything that's up there publicly, that is correct. Oh, you mean there could be a lot more that we don't know about? I'm just operating on unclassified information right now, so. <laughs> <laughs> but, but they could have put more assets up there, correct? Would we know if they had deployed other things? Well, the way you figure out um, what satellites are up beyond geostationary orbit is when you're beyond geostationary orbit, you have to navigate. And navigating typically for spacecraft involves GPS. GPS signals do not work when you're beyond geostationary orbit for the most part. So what, what the current methodology that we use, it's called two-way ranging. This is what NASA uses for the, for the Mars landers, for all the deep space missions. It's a very simple process where the satellite constantly calls home to Earth and asks ask Earth for where it is and what time it is. Um, this is what China uses. This is what the United States uses. 
Um, and so when you're in that cislunar environment, that satellite is constantly emanating radio waves to communicate with Earth so that it can fly its mission. So the way you can track that is mainly by tracking those radio waves and then you can, you can understand where it's going. But what if the satellite did not need to uh, navigate by contacting Earth? And, and that, that's a really big game changer. And that's uh, something called uh, using optical navigation. And that is something that my company has pioneered a technology um, that allows us to do that. And that's, that's primarily the technology that we are working with the US Space Force on to get on our satellites because we want US satellites to be able to navigate in the system environment without ever contacting Earth. Because if you do that then, the satellite never has to contact Earth and you never know where it is. And what, so what the Chinese, the Chinese theoretically could be doing this, right? Because they have a relay satellite up there because we don't really know what they have on the moon. Well, what we do know is all their relay satellites do emanate radio, radio waves. And that's how amateur astronomers at, for example, SETI detect the Chinese satellites activities um, and figure out where they're going. So we, we, we already know that they use this two-way ranging capability. But what we want to do as, the, as a country here on the United States side and with our allies, ideally we want technologies that allow us to not communicate with Earth um, and do autonomous navigation. And that, that's really something that RSA is leading with the U.S. Space Force. And what, what that does though, and I think you know, there's also something that needs to, um, that the, the country and the space community is working on collectively. You have to kind of change your mindset when you're in a truly deep space environment beyond geostationary orbit. If you are, um, the satellites are constantly sending out radio waves. This is very similar to the way submarine warfare occurs, where submarines are always trying to be acoustically quiet so that they can't be detected. Spacecraft as well, when you're beyond geo because you have no GPS capability, when you navigate, you are always giving out radio waves. So you are being radio loud. If you can be radio quiet, then you can truly be undetectable because you are not emitting any radio waves. And because of the, the vast distances, you cannot be seen optically because the distances are just so large. So when you're in this new, uh, when you're in this new environment where you want to fly spacecraft and do all the activities that you need to do, you really need to think about the challenges of this environment where the distances are large and you can really um, operate spacecraft in a different way. So we've talked about the Chinese having assets up there. Does anyone else, the Russians, commercial entities? Um, there, there are a variety of um, other countries doing one-off scientific missions out there, but I would say the two main players right now are the United States and China. Um, there are a variety of US companies going up um, in a very short time frame. commercial companies that are going up in support of the, the NASA Eclipse program. And, um, and then, of course, China as well. But China has a significant presence out there right now. And I, I think we, we are behind right now in, that, in this regime, but I think we will quickly surpass them because the, the US commercial industry, the commercial small side industry, there is a, a very active cislunar environment where we are all um, trying to create technologies that get up there and surpass our, our Chinese counterparts. And we're getting a lot of strong support from the U.S. Space Force for this. Are there any sorts of rules for operating in cislunar? I mean, I know there's an outer space treaty. Does that cover this? Do the Artemis Accords cover this? Yes, I mean, I think that um, everything that the United States does will, will, um, will have to follow the outer space treaty. And all of these activities, um, I'm sure that our, our U.S. Space Force uh, handlers are making sure that, um, that they're in compliance with all those rules. But what about the other actors, the other people who may be interested, like the Chinese? Sure, well, you know, it's, it's hard to say with the Chinese because lots of their, uh, their quote unquote scientific space missions also are run by the same organization that does their military spacecraft as well. So it's, it's hard to tell based on the organizations of the Chinese government what, what is scientific and what's not. You've mentioned the Space Force a couple of times. Is it clear that it is their responsibility to monitor what's happening in cislunar? Speaking as a civilian and as a US government contractor, it's, 
we, we have a pretty good lay of the land of organizationally where the Space Force and the US intelligence community is on the on the surveillance of the cislunar environment. And it's my my opinion that the Space Force is playing the, the lead role in this. Um, they seem to be the ones that are engaging commercial industry as much. Uh, their senior leadership are the ones that have been talking about talking about it publicly and really trying to make sure that the U, that the US commercial space industry is working towards the Space Force goals to make sure that we have complete space domain awareness in the cislunar environment and beyond too. Does NASA have a role to play? Of course, NASA does have a role to play. And um, I believe there was a memorandum signed between NASA and the Space Force on opportunities to collaborate on, um, such as planetary defense and a few other topics. Um, but I, I think that NASA and Space Force are working hand in hand quite collaboratively to make sure that that uh, Space Force achieves its objectives of uh, making sure that we have complete space domain awareness. And of course, NASA achieving its objectives of getting humans to the moon safely. And the Space Force is contributing towards that by providing complete space domain awareness to make sure that our astronauts, when they actually go there, um, get there in a safe way. So Sean, if you would boil this down for me, what's at stake when we're talking about cislunar? Well, what, what's at stake when you're talking about cislunar is that you have to remember that you are working in a very low gravitational environment and that you are also very hard to see because of the distances. So that means that you need to, if you wanna um, ensure that if the US wants to ensure it has dominance and complete control of the cislunar volume, we should create satellites that, what I like to say, fly low and slow, meaning that they fly in a low gravitational environment and they fly slowly because there is no need to build big spacecraft with big rocket engines because it doesn't make sense. What you want are small satellites that use the gravitational environment to its advantage and you want small satellites also because they're hard to detect. And you can also proliferate across the entire volume in numbers because small satellites are always cheaper than large satellites. And so if you can populate the cislunar environment with thousands of satellites, you then can actually surveil that entire volume in an economic way. And th this is something that, um, that China is already doing. Um, one important statistic here is in 2018, the People's Republic of China surpassed the United States in orbital launches 39 to 1. That was the first time. We're never going to catch them on launches now, number of launches. But the interesting thing is we surpassed in that year in 2018, the United States surpassed China in total tonnage put to orbit by a significant number. So we put a lot more volume up there. They put more stuff, but smaller up there. And the reason, one of the reasons why this is happening is because we have this big defense industrial complex where we like to put up big expensive satellites that cost billions of dollars and we need to get away from that. And this is even more important in the cislunar environment. Um, in one of your previous podcasts with Robert Cardillo, um, he, he's known at NGA for really uh, harnessing the commercial space industry. For example, Planet Labs under his leadership at NGA um, became a big player and is used now by the intelligence community for a lot of a lot of reconnaissance, unclassified reconnaissance to provide earth earth awareness. We need to follow this. This is even more important to cislunar environment because of the low gravity potential and of the ability to fly around without being detected. The fact that we don't now have eyes on this environment. Does that pose a threat to US national security? Is it a vulnerability? My opinion is that the cislunar environment right now and the lack of reconnaissance capabilities in that domain is a threat to national security. Can you expand on that? I would like to see a, what the United States needs to, needs to do is create a system where we can track all cislunar objects just like we do in the lower, altitude orbits like in Leo and Geo. But that is not a trivial task because you need to be able to do it in a in the space environment. So we can't rely on sensors on the earth anymore for a system. It has to be 
a constellation of capabilities. And it's not just um, electro-optical. We need to have infrared capabilities. We need to have SIGIN capabilities. We need to have the, the full, the full um, spectrum of intelligence that we use to monitor the entire environment. If we lose in cislunar, have we lost the space race? Yes. If, if we lose in cislunar, we've lost the space race. There's no doubt about that. And the reason why is because from the cislunar environment, you can, you can come in on the lower orbits without being detected. And, and based on current, current technologies, you can come in to lower orbits without being detected. And what, one thing that's also really important here is a term called Delta V. Delta V is a term that characterizes your ability to move around in orbit. It's essentially how much uh, rocket propulsion you, you need to burn to achieve a certain position in orbit that you want to get to. Um, for in the cislunar environment, almost all of the, the trajectory changes that you want to do require a little, very little amount of delta V because you're in a low gravitational environment. And what that allows you to do is get around wherever you want with a very small amount of, uh, of fuel. And that, that is something that is a game changer when it comes to the space environment, because that means if you have a variety of spacecraft in the cislunar environment with small amounts of Delta V, you can get into GEO, you can get into LEO, you can move around, and you will not be able to detect these types of movements if they start in the cislunar environment. So we've been talking about this space uh, between the Earth and the moon. What about beyond the moon? Right. So this is also again a concern, and it's something that um, has only become uh, only happened recently. So, for example, let's talk about the James Webb Space Telescope. This is a multi-billion-dollar telescope. I worked on it when I was in grad school. James Webb is in the Earth-Sun L2 point, which that's the Earth-Sun Lagrange 2 point. So that's where it, re it resides. So the question here now is. Is that satellite protected? And it's a very expensive U.S. asset. So recently, in a Chinese satellite was in a lunar environment. It was, and then it decided to just go out to the L2 point. It did so with very low delta V. It went out to the L2 point, and it hung out there for a little bit, and then it came back to the moon. Most recently, um, in January 2021, the Chang'e 5 orbiter was around the moon. And then it just went to the Earth-Sun L1 point. There are two NASA missions out there, the Solar and Heliospheric Observatory, SOHO, and the Deep Space Climate Observatory. So those two NASA assets provide critical space weather data to the US government. So this Chinese satellite last year in January, 2021, went out there. It was out there and it just hung out there for a few months. And then it came back. But the only way we knew we came, it came back is from amateur radio astronomers using SETI telescopes, detected signals from that satellite coming in, coming back to the lunar environment. That's the only way we found out about it. So that is a, that's a concern. Are they trying to spook us? What are they doing out there? Are they, could they destroy the Webb telescope and these other NASA missions? What I can say is that they're able to get out there and do what they need to do out there, right? They're demonstrating this capability. Um, when you look at their, their press statements, they say that they are testing out their spacecraft to see where, what its capabilities are. But they just happen to be going where we have assets. Yes. Which obviously has other implications. Of course. And see, and this is why the import, this is why the, the, there is, there should be extreme importance paid to um, in the lunar environment by the, by the US intelligence community and the Space Force because once you own this environment, you can get anywhere in ways that are hard to detect. Would the system you're talking about putting up, would that detect this activity beyond the moon? Yes, it would, but because actually that system that we are talking about, a constellation of small CubeSats in the, a retrograde resonant geostationary orbit, it can also, one of those satellites can easily, with a small burn of delta V 
it can go out to those Lagrange points as well. It can change its orbit. And if it sees a satellite going to, for example, web, it can peel off of our orbit and follow it, for example. Um, that, that's what this constellation allows. And that's what any type of constellation needs in the system or environment is we're, when you have a constellation in the system or environment, you can, you can follow objects that you want to follow, but you need to be there first. You need to already be there. And currently, the United States does not have the presence that we need to do these types of missions. That was Sean Usman, a veteran of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, now founder of RIA Space Activity. Jeff? Well, it's a little bit disturbing to me to learn that the U.S. won't be able to deploy a full constellation of satellites in some five or six years. Is that right? That's what he said. He said, you know, a smaller number could be put up more quickly if they have the funding and the support to do that. And these are tiny satellites, right? Oh, unbelievable. I have held one of these CubeSats before, easily fit in my arms, a little awkward because they have these wings that collapse, but they only weigh, you know, a couple of pounds. Very easy to hold and very easy to launch, by the way, and not as expensive as those huge military satellites that are operating in LEO and GEO. You can hold it in your hand. My God, this sounds like a, you know, a cliche, but it sounds like something out of Star Wars. He's little tiny things that can <laughs> buzz around. Anyway, one other question is, uh, that's kind of disturbing is that there's real uncertainty about what the Chinese are up to with their ASAT satellites or capability. We know they've conducted some ASAT tests, but from the ground. Up there, what has been concerning is that they have sent a mission to the dark side of the moon, the far side of the moon is actually the, the right term to use. And they also have a relay satellite up there. So they have capabilities that we do not have. And we, as, as, as Sean discussed in the interview, the only reason we know that they sent something somewhere close to James Webb is that amateur astronomers happened to catch this when they were doing observations from the earth. We need to know more. That's why it's so important to get his system or a system like it up there in orbit. Great, another thing to slap my forehead over. My forehead is becoming absolutely flat in the last couple of years. Anyway, that's another edition of Spy Talk. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate your sticking with us and uh, have a great summer. Thanks, Jeff, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Jean Mazur. And I'm Jeff Stein. See you next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.